My name is Will Malice, and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, October 6th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So you're in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Catherine Eston, assistant news editor. I'm Irina Kostake, assistant news editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, assistant news editor. And I'm Chris McLaughlin, also an assistant news editor. Cool. So um, our first story uh, for this week um, is about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg coming to speak at Amherst College. So, uh, Irina, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, it was uh, it was really cool. I'm really glad I got to go. So, uh, yeah, like you said, it was Thursday um, at Amherst College. And originally it was supposed to be in their chapel, the Johnson Chapel. I've been to a couple events in there, and it's pretty small. Um, so they moved it into Coolidge Cage, which is um, just a little farther down. And it's a lot bigger. So there was a really, I think, around like 1,500 people were there. Um, And they also made the live stream public, which was great, because I think originally you had to have an Amherst EDU email to get in, so it was more accessible to people. And yeah, it was was a really cool experience. So it was kind of set up like a talk show. So um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg came on, and she was sitting in like a little chair, and then next to her was um, the president of Amherst College, Biddy Martin. So they were just kind of engaged in like a Q&A session, basically. Um, And they talked about... um, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg's facing adversity as a woman in academia because she was talking about how when she went to Cornell, the ratio was four to one men to women. She also went to Harvard Law School only five years after they started admitting women, which was really interesting. Um, and then she talked about like what motivated her to be a champion for women's rights. Um, she talked about her relationship with the late Justice Scalia because they often oppose each other, but they still were really good friends. Um, and she talked about like a bunch of other cases that she presided over. So it was just really awesome to hear from her. I'd never... <laughs> like been in the presence of a supreme court justice so it was nice and she was really funny too she had a lot of like one-liners that were funny like i think during the q a session um people were allowed to ask her any question and the first person who came up was like if you weren't a justice what would you have wanted to be and she replied a diva (laughs) which was funny so yeah it was really cool i really liked it cool um it seems like she really like talked about like her life and her time on the court Did, did she talk anything about like modern day politics or even like the president or anything like that? Um, Kind of, not really. I mean, she did during the Q&A session um, because some people were asking her like, oh, what do you think the court's role is in this issue? Or like, what, you know, what can the court do about whatever? And her response was always like, the court is a reactive institution. So we can't really, we don't have an agenda. We don't have a say in like, you know, or dictate what issues we're going to pick up. It's more about the people who present them. So her outlook was on like, you know, it's the people who need to come to the court to address these issues. Um, There was one part where someone asked her like, oh, um, when people look back on this period of history and time, how do you think they're going to characterize it? And her response was an aberration. So I think that. That's the answer. <laughs> um, uh, so you mentioned the first question that kind of surprised you. Is there a she response? She's a diva. Was there anything else that um, Justice Ginsburg said, whether it was funny or relevant to her work in the court, that kind of caught you off guard? You didn't think would come up at the event? God, I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember because <laughs> she had so many moments like that where I was like, oh man. Um, she was talking about her husband at Cornell one time that I thought was funny. So when she was talking about like the ratio to um, from men to women at Cornell, she had this line where she was like, so, you know, like, if you couldn't find your husband there, then, like, I don't know what's <laughs> what's wrong. So I was like, oh, man, like that. I don't know. She just had a lot of, like, those funny moments. And I wish I could 
like I'm drawing a blank right now, but yeah, there's just a lot of things that I didn't like characterize as coming from her, but um, yeah. <laughs> just out of curiosity, does anyone know why she has an honorary degree from Amherst College? I wouldn't know for sure, but I assume it's because of her work in the, like, the women's rights movement back in like the 1960s and 70s um, and how she was a real pioneering figure in that whole fight for women's equality in the United States. It was two years before that she got appointed to the Supreme Court, so I, I think that's right, yeah. Cool, yeah, um, that seems like a really awesome experience because like Supreme Court's very like private, um, and it would be cool to like see them speak. And, like, and it's also cool that uh, Amherst College, they changed their um their plans so they posted the um the live stream of it online on their website and i Mm -hmm. i think uh they said it's going to be available for 60 days after the talk oh cool okay so um for our next story uh uh we have another sga article um so this article was also written by uh sophia gardner um she wrote um the SGA article last week. So the first thing that happened was the SGA announced that they would work with um, UMass for the Kids, which is an RSO that raises money for Bay State Children's Hospital. Um, And then uh, they talked about um, schools pouring rights with Coca-Cola. So the Food Justice Campaign um, has been looking to change or remove UMass's contract with Coca-Cola due to uh, an incompatibility with UMass values, uh, such as the um, company's contribution to the climate crisis. And that's according to, um, in the article, uh, Barka Bandari, who is a senator and a co-campaign advocacy, advocacy coordinator for uh, the Center for Education, Policy, and Advocacy, which is SEPA. And then it's also important to note that Bandari is a contributor to the collegian. And then one senator said that it would be tough to change the contract because UMass gets a lot of money from the contract, and that could lead to a raise in tuition. Uh, and there's another four years until the contract is up, so the SGA has time. They also started the um, applications for um, RSOs. And then the Health Council of the Faculty Senate is in the process of changing the campus to a vape-free campus. And then there was a bylaw that changed. So initially, uh, it said that the Secretary of University Policy and External Affairs should sit on the Student Town Advisory Board, but that was disbanded in 2015. Uh, That was replaced with the University Town of Amherst Collaborative, but that's been on hiatus for two years, and there's no sign of when it will overturned so now uh, the Secretary of University of Policy and External Affairs has to stay in bi-monthly contact with Amherst officials and sit on any town boards advisories or councils that would be beneficial so uh, uh, what's your guys reaction to the meeting this week so I wasn't really aware of the coca-cola pouring rights so I thought it was interesting to read about that but I'd also be interested to see if they did manage to end that contract what the reaction would be because I know there's only one dining hall on campus that doesn't serve soda and people seem to have an issue with that already which I always find funny because you can go to the dining hall that you know another 50 feet down and that one does have soda but I would understand why the university wouldn't want to remove that contract and I'd be interested to see how many students would support the removal of that as much as it seems there are certain senators that do. Also, I think the university has a lot more steps to take to fight the climate crisis. Um, So while this could be part of it, I think that they should also be looking into other ways that they could support the environment. Yeah, and I also found the uh, vape-free action thing. I did an interview a while ago with the tobacco-free campaign on campus. And if you notice those stickers that are on doors around campus that list, you know, UMass is a smoke-free tobacco-free they've added and vape-free campus. So they did say they were looking at ways to outreach that to try to get vaping off of the UMass campus. Uh, And I'd be interested, you know, I think that's a step one and I'm looking to see what else they add in the next few months. I think that would also be very hard to enforce 
for current students, but maybe in the future it would be something that when students come here and they're aware that they cannot vape on this campus, that it could be enforced. But right now, um, they're, it's, they're so small and it's so easy to do like indoors. I think the campus might have a hard time patrolling it. But after all these mysterious deaths, I think that it's necessary for them to take some sort of stand on the issue. I think in general, too, it's going to come down to just like education programs and like changing the mindset on vaping. So mm -hmm. once that changes, I think, and like like a new group of students come in, then it, it might go down. Also, I think it's pretty awesome that SGA is finally partnering with FTK because they raised so much money for Bay State, and I think it's like just a good organization. And I'm surprised that SGA wasn't involved in it in the past, but it's good that they are now, I think. So our next article... Um, is about uh, Daniel Ellsberg's papers. So, uh, Catherine, do you want to talk about that? Sure. So this was announced uh, about a week and a half ago. UMass acquired the papers of the famous political activist and whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, so if you've ever seen the movie The Post, good movie, suggest it. Daniel Ellsberg was a whistleblower, so he released the Pentagon Papers, uh, first to the New York Times, then the Washington Post picked them up. They're published nationally, and that was uh, the Pentagon kept track of all of the American involvement in Vietnam. And they knew much earlier than they admitted to the public that the Vietnam War was not going to be won. Uh, so it was a huge scandal for that information to get out. Um, he was uh, charged with a crime, but he was ultimately not convicted of it. And he didn't go to prison for it. Uh, but he continued to be an activist. He did a lot of uh, anti-nuclear war things. Uh, he continues to be an activist today. He lives in California. And while interviewing a few people who were involved in the process... Uh, a professor at UMass real or found out from a journalist friend of his that those papers were still at Ellsberg's house. Uh, so it's papers from his entire career from the time he decides to release the Pentagon Papers through now. Uh, and even though he didn't previously have an association with UMass, uh, professors and administrators went out and visited with Ellsberg and ended up purchasing uh, his entire collection of papers to come be in the special archives here. Uh, and especially in the context of politics and whistleblowers as it is right now with I think it was today or yesterday a second whistleblower was just confirmed against the Trump administration uh, talking to a few professors on campus about this in the history department uh, econ department and journalism department all brought up the current situation saying you know it's amazing that students will have the resource of the Ellsberg papers and of course professors that have access to that research and be able to talk about this in a class setting yeah I think this is like like a huge gap for UMass and like you just mentioned about using it in the class I know like Chris and I take journalism law. And, journalism um, and law with Karen List. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that like we spend like like I think like a mo like a whole day on, on the Pentagon Papers, and um, so it's definitely really cool. I, um, I think you mentioned in your article it's going to take around like two years for them to like go through everything and like organize it and stuff. So that's that's pretty crazy. Yeah, one of the professors I talked to who went and met. Uh, with Ellsberg in California, talked about they went down to his basement. It was just box after box of papers. And he reached in and pu pulled out a paper and they read it together. And it was this memo from officials that were in the Nixon White House talking about how they needed to eliminate Ellsberg uh, in order to protect the president's reputation. And it was just saying, you know, every t paper you could pull out of that box would have a story like that and would have a historically significant thing like that. And just to know that that's all in UMass's hands now. I think the the best part about the whole story is how um, just the whole like Pentagon Papers story is how um, he was getting tried for um, this, and then he ended up. I think he got off because Nixon was caught wiretapping. Right. <laughs> kind of got lucky with the timing there. Yeah. Um, Although I also think something interesting come from this that doesn't have to do with the papers itself is the fact that UMass is the ones getting them. 
Um, you know, they talked about Ivy Leagues that could have ended up with them, including Ellsberg's alma mater. Uh, could have ended up with one of the University of California's because I believe he was from right near Berkeley. So University of California, Berkeley would have been a likely candidate. And there was another University of California on the list that he had been considering. UMass, we've talked about it on the podcast a couple times before, is really rivaling to try to get into that upper echelon of public universities in the United States. Uh, and I think this might signal that UMass is willing to kind of put their money where their mouth is and say, you know, we're a top research institution. We should have collections like this. Yeah, totally. Like, do you, do you think maybe like this could lead to like UMass acquiring more types of like documents, stuff like this? Well, I, I think so. If, if you're somebody that has a collection like this that has to do with political activism, whistleblowers, or even the Vietnam War, it would be a privilege and kind of an honor to now have your work not just go to a university like UMass, but also to say, oh, it's in the same special collections as Daniel Ellsberg's papers. So uh, for our last story, um, this is an article that was written by uh, Will Catcher, who uh, who is an assistant photo editor at the Cleveland, and um, he also writes news articles. Uh, this article is about... Um, so it's about a climate science center that was already here, but they, um, the U.S. Department of the Interior awarded um, a $4.5 million grant to the center, and this is for the Northeast Climate Adaption Science Center. Um, and then this uh, center uh, keeps resource managers aware of new advancements in climate science, um, and that's according to Richard Palmer, uh, who is a co-director of the NECASC. Uh, and the center's Regional Invasive Species and Climate Change Management Project helps managers prepare for invasive species and also lobbies state governments to move certain plants and animals onto the prohibited species list. And it also attempts to simplify information for resource managers. And then another part of the grant is that UMass will now provide four fully funded research assistantships at the center for PhD students. And the center covers 21 states um, and covers about 42% of the US population. Um, So uh, what are your guys' thoughts on the story? I think it's very cool that we have that center. Uh, I'm glad that they're getting that investment from the Department of the Interior. Uh, But the news of having those uh, positions available for grad students, I think, is going to be a huge deal because, you know, having research opportunities and making sure that this research is always going on. And I didn't realize how much they covered in the United States until I read the article, especially because the word Northeast is very misleading there. Yeah, I think it said, like, it covered... um I think it was 42% you said? Yeah, 42%, and it covers from, like, Missouri to Maine and then includes Washington, D.C. as well. Yeah. M- Missouri, so. known northeast state, b- yeah. barely <laughs> not in that New England category. <laughs> Misses out just slightly there. Um, but, yeah, I think it's great. I'm glad that they're making sure that these positions are open to students at this university, um, and I'm excited to see the research they produce. Yeah, and it's, it's good to know that UMass is, like, supporting climate science research. All right, so um, that was our last news story, but uh, there's a, uh, Cassie, you have a new news podcast if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so um, we just released the first episode of Constructive Criticism, which is a Daily Collegian news podcast, which um, draws attention to some of the biggest issues on campus. Uh, So this this, um, episode was about parking, which is something that students regularly complain about, like high pricing, unnecessary tickets, and there was just a lot of tension between the student body and parking services. So we spoke to two students who felt like they were treated unfairly by parking services, and then we headed to the parking services office and talked to the manager there, Jonathan King, and we learned a lot about how hard it is for parking services to accommodate everyone and how much they really want to work with students. 
Um, so our next episode is going to be on Edgy Realm. Um, so if you guys want to give it a listen, um, that would be great. Thanks. <laughs> so, uh, so when do you think your uh, your next episode will be up? So we have to wait a little while to meet with IT, but it will be up the week of the 28th. Cool. So everyone should go check that out. Right, cool. So um, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time. And once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Irina Kostake. I'm Cassie McGrath. And I'm Chris McLaughlin. And you've been listening to the Collegiate News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.